Well, I'm glad to be back. And the thing is, today I wanted to drop something heavy. And as I'm putting it together and I have writer's block, huh? I pulled a thread. And then that thread just got some wizards naked. Good, bad, you'll be the judge. So I'm not going to talk about it today because I'm going to sit and I'm going to put this together, you know, because it's really hard when I travel. Um, I use key fobs, you know, that generate codes to access things. And I'm going to tell you, I had like the hottest mess of travel there is, you know, from looking at uh, who's really funding DeSantis in South Carolina. It's definitely not old money. That's for sure. And, um, I think, you know, I'm going to be getting a lot of people naked with my article. It's going to be pretty heavy. Uh, but, you know, dang. I mean, I can't. So we're just going to stick to something that my listeners already knew was going to happen. But we're going to elaborate a little bit and go back in time just so that we can see who funds most of this stuff. That's what's important. And you should see how you could see it yourself. It's not rocket science. We're going to go back in time. Let me start with, you know, as you guys know, uh, Barack Hussein Obama played a significant role in the peace process leading up to the signing of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, CPA, as they say, between the government of Sudan and the Sudan People's Liberation Army Movement, SPLA, in, back in 2005. At that time, Obama was a freshman state senator for Illinois, and he was in Sudan doing deals. And most of you probably don't know that because no one was paying attention. And see, that's what pisses them the most off, is that you're all paying attention now, and they can't hide. Good, bad, ugly, you know, all that stuff. I mean, all of you can go into that amazing site that, you know, I found that... that um I found this thing called buy me a coffee, right? Uh, when someone was talking shit about me and spreading lies, you know, the Akbar lies years ago. Uh, I mean, I had it coming to me. I mean, I knew that John was not going to roll over. Hayden's not going to roll over. Clapper's not going to roll over. All these people aren't going to roll over and that rules of engagement can't take me out. God forbid that they do. It's because God wanted it. So there we go. There's so much we could talk about. We could start talking you know, we got to talk about South America, but not right now, right? Uh, you know, I did showcase in Peru the H5N1. I'm just pointing it out and all this crap coming in from the border. All of you are distracted with Tucker getting ousted from Fox, but that was inevitable after his speech. I mean, his speech that evening after his show on Friday at the Heritage Foundation was the kickoff. And, uh, you know, it came pretty close in time. I mean, you know, I did say, dear Tucker, dear Tucker. Wrote that years ago, a while ago, isn't it? Over a year ago. Dear Tucker. And everything changed after that. It's, it's almost like I knew. But no, what is it called? Coincidence. I'm a grifter, right? So <laughs> what do I know? We're going to talk about what's going on in Sudan because this was expected. Uh, wait, hold on. Let me rephrase that. I actually expected it to go Djibouti Eritrea way. I did not expect the Sudanese... Well, no, I should have expected it. I mean, but the probability was very, very small. 
So here's here's what the news wants you to talk about. They want you to talk about Fox News. You don't care, right? They're dead in the water. Done, right? MSM is dead. They're the big biggest domestic terrorists there are. People want you to talk about the criminal charges that are coming from Georgia. You already knew that because I told you that. So that's not news either. Let's keep moving, right? Let's just keep moving. They want you to, oh, look, Tucker's going to Alex Jones. Thirsty. Listen, nobody cares, right? Nobody cares. That is not going to feed you, right? That's not going to protect you. Knowledge is. So, uh, (laughs) you know, there was this one thing that I was looking for. So I had names and people, two names, right? Because you all knew that President Trump was getting raided at the beginning of July when I said it. Well, did I say it online? I know I texted everybody. You know, I remember Steve telling me, nope, that's not happening. Ah, I was actually in New York the day they raided him. And I was like, why is it taking so long? And then it hit me. Someone found a thread that connected the two people. And we're going to go like all the way back to General Petraeus. Like what? But it's going to make sense. Uh, How do I start this? How do I start this? Jeez. I mean, now they're telling you about biolabs in Sudan. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, wherever Victoria Newland goes, so do biolabs. <laughs> and then her little lackey, Molly Fee. Pompeo, you suck. Pompeo, you suck. You know, you know what I've realized? And this is not a feminist thing. I'm going to be straightforward with you guys, okay? Men in D.C., men in agencies, men in general, that have uh, weaseled their way up in the ranks in regards to foreign policy, in regards to law enforcement, in regards to anything like that, they're completely, they hate women. Oh, they do. The The only ones that they will allow to advance are the ones that obey and cause destruction. Okay. And I don't mean it in like a feminist power, right? But they really do hate women and they are threatened by them. And it's like, why? If we go back to what you alleged your caveman times, right? You were the one going out, sacrificing yourself to bring back the lion so everyone can eat while the woman managed the house, the berries, cooked the food, raised the village. Women are a lot more capable in multitasking. But again, I take it back to the supranuclei at the optic chasm where you define feminine and male qualities because that's actually on a spectrum. And they believe that that size of the cell actually depicts your ability to multitask too. Just saying. There's more breath in in, in, uh, uh, the neuronal associations. But that's a topic for another time. Now, um, yeah, they really don't like women especially strong ones, especially smart ones too. They, they really don't, you know, from Charleston to Fairfax to Alexandria to DC to the heart of DC, I could tell you one thing. These people in the DC swamp really think that things will operate the way they used to under Reagan and Bush. That's what I kept hearing. Well, under Bush, this nobody gives a shit what happened then. That's the 90s. That's the early 2000s. That's the 80s and the 70s. It's 2023, my friends. 
And the more you try to push things to be at the level that you feel comfortable with, because that worked for you, the more you're going to fail. Now, that's that right here. Now, let's move it along to discuss what's going on in Sudan. But before we go to that, um, well, not before. I mean, I, I should, you know, I should showcase like where you guys can look because this is what I just want to make sure that I'm not exposing something I don't want yet. Sorry. Give me a second. Let me just take a look. Agency details. Which one's this? The transaction history. That's not it. I don't want that one. Where's this? Don't want that one either. Okay, that one's a good one. That one's a good one. And where's the major ones? There we go. All right. So you know what's really weird? So when you, uh, I've taught you how you can check where your tax dollars are being spent, right? And, you know, that's USA spending. And um, how they budget things because, you know, you want your fiscal years where it's being used, right? You want to know where this money is going and to who. It's, it's, quite, it's quite a fascinating, you know, discovery tool. And, you know, when people actually start to use it the right way, things start to make full sense. I mean, you know, how and what is going on? You know, how do we start with Sudan? Well, let me start again. So Obama, right? He actually helped in creating the CPA. Obama was the United States Senator at the time, representing the Illinois. Now, John Brennan was actually his advisor while he was Senator. Just a groomer, Senator, whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, Grooming the Senator, babysitting, directing, bringing him over to trips. But in 2004... Obama, right, as a freshman kind of thing, traveled to Sudan with Senator Sam Brownback to visit the refugees of Darfur and to assess the situation in the country. And because he went there, it spotlighted what was going on. And, And it was, you know, talking about the conflict that the Sudanese had and started to, he himself started to put pressure on the international community, which then in 2011, he acknowledged the secession of a portion of Sudan. There he go. There, there he goes again. And there, there goes the United States again, creating countries out of fucking thin air, you know, cause that suits them, right? This is, this is how they work. Okay. I get very agitated when it's a repeat rinse and people are just not seeing it. Okay. Every time you create a new country because you believe that this will help you dominate, it's going to ping back in your face. And this is exactly what, ah, no, we're not seeing it. We're seeing it in operation now. So remember this story starts in 2004 when Obama went down there. So following that trip, Obama became such a vocal advocate for peace in Sudan because he was talking about how he was born in Kenya or somewhere or Morocco, right? He was in Morocco saying he was from there. Then he went to Kenya and he's Kenyan, but no, he's Hawaiian, makes no sense. You know, all that stuff is supposedly, supposedly scrubbed. So anyway, so he was advocating, you know, for peace in Sudan and he spoke about the issue at the Senate and he pushed to pass legislation aimed at ending the conflict. He worked very closely with Brownback and John Kerry 
and promoted peace talks and support to the mediation efforts of the African Union. You know, we came, we saw, he died, right? They took him out after, right? The African Union was a big deal, but this is how you weasel your way into it to then take him out. Because if they're not going to give you control of it, oh, that sounds great, but just give us control. It's almost like, let's run all the Gen Zers identical to the initial Tea Party young boy deployment that George Bush did. We've got a new wave coming and it's all going to be Gen Zers being run like horses and thoroughbreds. But the only reason they're going to win is because they're allowed to control them. And hence, Sudan. So Sudan, right, all this happened and the African Union and the international community were like, all right, you want mediation. What do we do, right? This is 2005. While they say, you know, officially, John Brennan um, didn't have a direct role in negotiating the CPA, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, with Sudan and the Sudan, uh, the Sudan Liberation Army. It's called the SPLA in Sudan, which is really where, in 2005. Um, they say he hadn't, but remember, he was the one guiding, and let's not forget George Tennant's work up in the African Horn, but I digress. So, um you know, he picked it up officially in 2013, uh, you know, to analyze and monitor security threats in Sudan and South Sudan um, and allegedly support for peacekeeping operations in the region. Now, um, he also allegedly <laughs> supported like humanitarian efforts, right? Because under Brennan's leadership, the CIA worked to allegedly track and disrupt terrorist groups operating... I, Sorry, he led the, how do I say this, efforts to amplify Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, all the stuff they needed to go. <laughs> he didn't address ongoing conflicts. He ensured that they were there because then how else would they be able to split that nation up and create a South Sudan in 2011? But, you know, I digress. He was busy with Al-Qaeda and the affiliates there, right? He played a very important role in supporting efforts to implement the CPA agreement and, um, you know, establishing South Sudan, really, because it was established in 2011, but whatever, right? So Obama, um, the CPA was negotiated by a number of actors, including um, the government of Sudan, the Sudan uh, People's Liberation Army, regional and international bodies, and the negotiations leading up to the CPA were actually facilitated by IGAD. Now, Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, is a, an organization that compromises, get this, Kenya, Somalia, Sudan, Uganda, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Djibouti. Now, um, IGAD started talks in regards to some peace agreement, you know, within Sudan, because they have their own things going on there, right? Um, back in the 90s. And this in 1994, to be specific. And that's because I've talked about this before, you know, where we were setting up the nuclear agreements and the pipelines, the gas pipelines with Iran, with Oman, you know, all those schematics were coming together. Now, in 2004, the African Union and the United Nations actually joined IGAD um, to have this IGAD-led mediation. So let's just call it the Horn of Africa, 
right? Anyway, and what was called the Troika. I've, I've actually talked about Troika once before, and it's important now that we bring it out to the top. So the Troika is basically what you just saw. What was the, let me check the chat for a second. And I know there's a delay, but I'll wait. What country was just led into NATO? I just want to see if anybody, you know, with the whole Erdogan stymie thing, what country was just led into NATO? Let me see the chat. Oh, wow. Holy crap. Thank you for the rumbles. I appreciate you. I just saw that. Finland. So what, what role does Norway play in um, NATO right now? Does anybody know? Yeah, I did say Finland, but what, does, what role does Norway play? Yeah, I know they help bomb <laughs> North Stream <laughs> easement, right? But what do they play? What role do they play in NATO? These are really important questions that you should head of the Arctic Council right now, destroyed Nord Stream 2, bumper area to Russia, Arctic Circle Treaty, it's an intermediary. They help others integrate. Well, just so you know, the Troika is comprised of Norway, the United States, and the United Kingdom. They're the ones that played the role. It almost sounds like the gathering of three, Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. But for some reason, we have the Nords in there, right? So I want you to think like, okay, so um, Finland and Norway have very close relations, while sometimes they're even used interchangeably. Now, a troika, just so you know, is a term that you use when three individuals or organizations or countries work together. Finland may be part of a new troika on certain issues, but that would be considered more informal to say, or maybe there's some ad hoc arrangement rather than something extremely formal with the whatever. But it's important for us to remember that it was Norway, the United States, and the United Kingdom, that Troika, that decided that, hey, we're just going to come in and separate this nation at this line and create South Sudan and Sudan. You're going to be like, Tori, they didn't split up till 2011. Yeah. But that's how it was done. It was just pre-planned. They, they just needed Obama to get into office to finish it because, you know, brainchild and all, right? So... The Troika that was comprised by them played the most critical role, role in securing the final peace agreement that was passed in 2005. There were a lot of mediators that contributed. So it would be um, Becky of South Africa, uh, uh, Daniel Arapmoy of Kenya, and um, it was Baka. Uh, um, Mkapa of Tanzania. That's it. Um, that allegedly uh, worked together. Obviously, it was all done by Brennan and Tennant, but it was Obama that was bringing it to the Senate with John Kerry. Hence why John Kerry then became his secretary. I mean, it's just, this is so, let me continue. 
So after he became like this vocal player, you know, they created South Sudan. It like totally happened. It became an independent country on July 9, 2011, after a referendum was held. Uh, you know, it was an election. Ask me how I know. Ask me how I know about this referendum. I need not answer that. So it was an overwhelming vote in favor that South Sudan separate from Sudan. Ask me how that vote went. It almost went like 2020. So this agreement of them to separate allegedly was set in stone after the peace agreement that they signed in 2005. That was between the Sudanese and the Sudan People's Liberation Army. Sounds like the same crap they pulled with the Korean Peninsula. So um, this agreement was for a six-year period, almost like they knew that they were going to separate them, right? So when they signed in 2005, it expired in 2011. 2011, they had a referendum and they split the country in two. See, I see so many people online talking and it upsets me because a lot of them don't know history, right? And they talk like whatever. The one thing I can say, I was actually shocked that they use pirates to kick this all off, right? There's uh, people within Sudan that are telling people this. Yeah. I just dropped my mic. <laughs> There's people in Sudan that think this is a, a, a Russia-U.S. conflict, which is not entirely false. Excuse me while I fix this microphone. It's not entirely false, but... Let me up this. All right, that's better. Okay. Some <laughs> literal mic drop. So, where was I? So, the people within Sudan think that this is like a Russia control slash U.S. control movement. Ask yourself, why the hell would that be playing out in Sudan? Why would that be playing out in Sudan? Well, I think we need to go back in time. Let's go to three years ago so I can put the, the whole Russian aspect to it, to bed. Let me see. Is this it? Give me a second. All right. Do you remember back in the day, well, back in the day, you remember how um, Hunter Biden's partner got busted for some African stuff? But it wasn't even him. It was Jill Biden, but whatever. Anyway, here is a video from Africa News. This is over three years ago where Putin is meeting with all the Africans. Moves being made. Take a listen. Presidents of Nigeria, Uganda, and Sudan met with Russian President Vladimir Putin on Wednesday on the sidelines of the Russia-Africa summit in Sochi. Uganda's Yuwara Museveni extolled Russia for its support in building Uganda's army with Russian equipment. We want to buy more. And we have been paying cash in the past. Cash, cash, cash. So if they could be, and, and this slows down the pace because we must have cash to pay. What I propose is that uh, we, we, we supply and we pay. That would be some sort of credit supply. Thanks to the support of our friends and allies like the Russian Federation, we have significantly reduced the terrorist of Boko Haram. 
President Putin enumerated a big project between Moscow and Africa. We have big projects currently underway, including cooperation on the exploration of mineral resource bases. Russian investors have invested meaningful sums, for example, into gold mines in your country. The flagship of which is the Kush project, which produces three tons of gold every year. From our side, we are waiting for the agreement on further cooperation between Sudan and Russia to be approved and signed by you. So we can cooperate in reforming the military institution and developing the capacities of its armed forces. Putin also said Moscow has written off 20 billion US dollars in debt and provided aid to African nations. He did not say over what periods. That's okay. I'll tell you what period. So let me show you why Sudan clearly made it, well, they made it clear as to why Putin was kind of delaying on these things. So there's there's a very interesting thing here. So that was from three years ago. Let me, let me get fiscal budget 2020 in too, right? So that was from three years ago, right? So we're talking 2020-ish, late 2019, that all this happened right? Where the Sochi summit in 2019 happened, remember? And, right, okay. So, here he is with them. Now, I want to show you what your country has been doing from that period of time, please. Let's take a look. Let's start with uh, start date of performance. Oh, wow. Look at that. So, this is under the 2021, let, let me see. Hold on. When did they start the performance and what fiscal budget did they put it in? Hold on. Is it a 2020 or 2021? Damn. So something that started in 2017 was actually fit into the 2022-2023 budget, which means that President Trump had no eyes on this contract, meaning that it was not active until later. Now, let's see what this top contract here is. Oh, Agency for International Development, definitive contract. Interesting. Now, let's go here and let's go here. Let's tick that. Am I sharing this? I am. Good. This is how I find stuff. This is all contracts in Sudan, by the way. All right. So we start there. $1.6 million. It was supposed to end 8-1-2022. So these are all the contracts that they gave. Come on, where is it? Why can't, the, oh, what I want to show you guys, why is it, <gasps> did they just hide this after I took screenshots? Please don't say that. I'm going to get very, very upset. There they go. Now I want to show you this, these grants. These are grants that are just handed out to individual recipients. I want you guys to see Description masked for PII purposes. You know, $400 is a lot of money in Sudan, South Sudan. 133 This is like millions of dollars. Hold on. Let's just keep going. These are all done from the Department of State. It's almost like they were funding rioters. Just individuals. All hidden throughout the past couple of years. 
Can you see that? All at the end of 2020, just paying. Oh, you should see this. The youth center, 20 grand. And you know what else they have done? There is one grant to an individual, get this, uh, no, to the Lowell Deng Foundation, right? Which is, get this, they paid your tax dollars, 25 grand, to provide funding for SAT prep training and coaching of high school and select school basketball players with the potential study in the U.S. <laughs> wait, oh, wait, I have to show you that. Give me a second. Just so that you understand, the State Department always looks after the NBA too. I mean, why not, right? Because <laughs> why not? We should, we should totally be thinking of the NBA and the NFL making a money with like really tall Sudanese people. So here's your twenty five thousand in September of twenty twenty, and this says they want basketball players with the potential of studying in the U.S. Okay. Just, I'm just pointing out where your tax dollars go. I just want to show you what they're doing, right? I just want to show you what they're doing. Well, let's go back to the other, the other one, because you might actually catch on to, you know, some of these companies here. All right. So this is all Department of State. It's like the State Department just hands out our money to individual recipients. And, you know, the money... Um, USA, oh, 350. PEPFAR Community HIV Services <laughs> at the Rescue Initiative just deployed a couple months ago. It's going to end in November of this year. I wonder what they're giving them. Agency for International Development. This is what you should be looking at. And then maybe we can ask the IRS to, you know, just stop it. I'm really interested in this. Let's see. Association of Media, right? Development in South Sudan. So this right here, AMDIS, right, as you could see, that's been paying, is for media paid by the State Department, by the State Department, right? These two right here by the State Department paid for media in South Sudan. Let me show you that so you understand how they take control of nations and the narratives. Uh, we'll get into the details of more, but it's the Association of Media Development in South Sudan. Started in 2019, ends in 2021. Obviously, they did the work afterwards. And again, $46,000 is a lot of money to the Sudanese. This proposal to support new training batch of journalism students for the Media Development Institute run by Association of Media Development in South Sudan, Department of State, in other words. So this is just another USGAM, you know, arm and branch. This is how you can see who, what, when, and the agency. So the U.S. Embassy in Juba got it. So the U.S. Embassy paid it out. Bureau of African Affairs. This would be under Molly Fee at the time, right? And Newland, of course. She's like, she wants to be Victoria Newland. She's a witch. Newland is a witch. Like, why would you care? Oh, I wasn't sharing that, was I? Sorry. I get, I'm sorry. There's just so many screens. Like I said, 
I'm a one man band. If I actually had a producer, I'd be, I <laughs> wouldn't be able to do what I do. All right, here we go. So that's that. Just so that you understand the dynamics in Sudan and the interest that the Obama administration has. Because if you think the Obama administration is not running things and hadn't been running things in the background through the fourth unelected branch of government that is almost unfireable, right? And you've got something else coming. Now, it's important um, for us to revisit, you know, a discussion that Molly Fee had um, a year ago about U.S. policy toward Africa. You guys should see who this crazy chick is. So I want to show you her. Give me a second. Because we can all thank Pompeo for having, you know, Assistant Secretary of State Molly Fee. <laughs> I can't. Okay, I want to fast forward. Okay. And obviously a man's talking, then he brings a woman on to then talk some more and make introductions. Here we go. Has received numerous awards, awards and recognition. She's a native of Chicago a graduate of Indiana University and holds a master's degree from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. She's also fluent in Arabic. We're very delighted to have you join us this morning, Assistant Secretary uh, here at Howard University and look forward to your remarks and our engagement. Thank you. Good morning. Let's see, I'm, I'm short, so I, I have to adjust that. Uh, I want to thank all of you for the warm welcome here. Um, I'm a longtime district resident, so I have walked. Look at that. One time, one time in my whole career, when she was still wet behind the ears, I ran into this. This is what's representing us in the most hostile regions. They just moved her to Afghanistan. We had that debacle. And again, we don't need Arabic in Afghanistan. We need Pashto, but okay. Interpreters, right? Pay attention to this woman and look at the similarity. She even cuts her hair like freaking Newland when Newland's feeling frisky. You know, there's got to be a video of one of these chicks somewhere dancing drunk. So whoever owns that Chan board, please feel free to drop it. the streets around Howard University, but I've never had the opportunity uh, to come inside and see the buildings. So thank you. And, and the buildings are impressive, but it's the spirit of the people who have been here and who are here, uh, which is so encouraging and inviting. So thank you for having me here today. I also want to thank you, Dr. Johnson, the Provost, Dr. Kamara, for the thoughtful and informative uh, introductions. I learned a lot listening to you, and I hope that the students who are here with us uh, in person and virtually also enjoyed uh, those discussions. Um, today, I'm really excited to have an engagement with you as we think about the future of US-Africa policy. Um, I'm, of course, really excited to come first to Howard University uh, so early in my tenure and my assignment. Uh, because Howard is truly one of the capital's jewels. Uh okay, just so you guys know, these are the people 
that are representing us overseas. This is Molly Fee, okay? These are the people that are representing us overseas. Who picks these clowns? Pompeo. Why did you keep her? Why? Because he's okay with her because she's an ugly, right? Corrupt. Nobody looks at her as a woman. And I think maybe that's why he's okay because Pompeo has a little bit of feminine hate too. You know, there's, there's, there's only one time that I've seen him. Well, I can't say that. You know, when he was trashing Kellyanne Conway, who, by the way, damn, she's hot and smart. Okay. And now that she's single men watch out, she will eat you alive because she's got charisma. She could talk off her cuff and, you know, just saying for next administration, I'd love to see her take hold of the African horn in regards to being the PR relations. I think she'd do fantastic. Why do we have all these Victoria Newland lookalikes? You know, this woman makes so much money. She couldn't get a better haircut. She's worth millions. No better haircut. Like, is this on purpose? Yes. Cause they know the uglier and the fatter you are, the more they will embrace you. If you're a hot looking woman, they don't. I'm just saying they don't. You've got to be not good looking. Uh, the Center for Africa Studies and the African Studies Department at Howard are, as we as was discussed, among the best in the nation. And uh, we at the State Department and I personally have long admired your tradition of debate and dialogue and the scholarship of Howard students and faculties. And I think many of you know that Howard alumni play an important role in U.S. foreign policy in the U.S. government. And I hope, as the provost said, that my presence here today will encourage some uh, Howard graduates to think about a career in the State Department. So, all of you know that there's feeder schools for the CIA, feeder schools for the State Department, feeder schools for the FBI, certain programs. Well, lo and behold... Howard, one of the feeder schools for the international office. I'm showing you this. Now, the high pitch thing is coming from the Howard University, you know, um, recording. I can't help that. So I'm just letting you know. So uh, this uh, Victoria Newland wannabe, right, is the one that created and helped <laughs> create the hot mess in South Sudan. They knew exactly what to do. You know, when you control a nation, what you do is you create some pacification to the people that you control, right? But then when you need to cause disruption, you have grenades everywhere. And this is exactly what we're seeing. All those small payouts to rioters and people that just do stuff is pretty incredible. Biscuit, you need to get off of that. Biscuit, get off of that. Sorry, my cat was taking my microphone. So, um, and here I am talking about cat ladies. <laughs> so, there we go. So, I just wanted to point out for you to understand who these people are and where they come from. And I want you to have a face to the name. I keep talking about Molly Fee for a long time. So, I think it's about time you guys get to know her. Look at that face. What the hell is going on here? Let's go into where... She talks about how she wants to do all these uh, great things for them. Here we go. Infrastructure. Boom. Here we go. Let's continue this. Spread of the Omicron variant. 
We understand that these restrictions are causing real difficulty for those in South Africa and nearby countries and look forward to a timely adjustment of our travel policies. We are learning from this pandemic. We know that viruses don't respect borders so that the only long-term solution is to vaccinate people everywhere across the world. We will continue to work with our African partners until we can put this pandemic behind us and improve the collaboration between our health systems. Second, the economy. The COVID-19 pandemic is not just a health crisis, it has caused an economic crisis here and abroad. Many African countries experienced their worst economic downturn in more than 25 years due to the pandemic. Okay, I'm done with her. I can't even look at Molly Fee anymore. But one thing I want to point out, all these bio labs that are being set up, they're set up by the State Department, just so you guys know. So that's why when they kicked off everything, the bio labs are right there at the heart of it. I was like, oh, this is like all, you know, this is like it's a war between Russia. But look, Russia has been selling weapons, cash trades for decades to the Africans. They had a great relationship with Gaddafi, right? They have a great relationship with the Africans, right, in general, because the U.S., wanted to keep it a dark continent. And by dark, I mean in the dark. They didn't want infrastructure put up. They didn't want anything. And, you know, a lot of people say the Chinese aren't expansionists. They aren't aggressive expansionists. They come in and they spite the IMF in the eye. They poke it in the eye. If you guys remember when Greece was in debt and the IMF came in, Obviously, there was a GoFundMe that over like a couple of days raised all the money that Greece needed to pay. I wonder if that actually went to them. I never followed that. Maybe maybe some journalist that cares about money can ask GoFundMe where all that money went to. I know I donated $100 to their debt to the IMF. But here's what happens. You know how the Greeks got out of it? They sold one of their most ancient seaports to China. China. China comes in with cash and says, oh, you don't want that. I'll just buy your port. Hey, Africa, you don't want that. Uh, you know what I'll do? I'll build the diamond mine and I'll just take a portion of the diamonds that you mine. Right. Hey, are you like hungry? I'll build supermarkets and I'll just charge rent. And, uh, you know, and, and then you just do the goods. I'll start you off. They come in in a financial way. Because they want to spite the IMF, which builds on debt. Now, this is how it's done. The Chinese are people that have been around for thousands of years. I don't know why in the late 1800s, right, post-Abraham Lincoln, these, this infant nation decided to implement Alexander the Great's strategy, right? But instead of being like him where he would liberate them and they would praise him because he helped them gain independence. So they would praise him because they liked him, not because he owned them, right? The U.S. decided we're going to liberate, but own them. See, you can't win like that, especially with nations that have thousands of years of history. I could tell you that all the African nations may even bind together just to annihilate you. And now, Thank God for the internet. People can actually see for what it is. That it's not the people. It's the few. They're seeing it in their own countries. 
So let's talk about a little bit with the geopolitics there. And I've done this in 2018, 2019, and 2020 on my shows. So there's not a lot uh, that we need to go into yet. But we should go to about five years ago. I want you to see what the government-funded agency told you why there's a conflict in South Sudan. And remember, we created South Sudan. We created South Sudan. Obama negotiated the South Sudan creation before he was president. Kind of big deal for someone that was a freshman and had one term and became president. Almost like he was groomed for that role. The more you know. So here's what NPR, which is a 100% government-funded news organization, had to tell us. Just in 2011, South Sudan became the world's newest nation. South Sudanese people voted to split from Sudan, and the referendum ended the longest-running war on the African continent. Salva Kiir from the Dinka tribe won the presidency, and Riek Machar Anwar became his vice president. In 2013, however, Kiir accused Machar of planning a coup, and the country quickly descended into civil war. And it has been brutal. Food aid has been systematically blocked, sparking famine in parts of the country. Those fleeing say forces are killing indiscriminately, often along tribal lines. The conflict is so heated, South Sudan is now the fastest growing humanitarian crisis in the world. It's also incredibly complicated. In a country smaller than the state of Texas, there are 60 tribes, and many of their long-term feuds have become part of the greater conflict. One example, in a town called Wau, the Furtit are farmers and the Dinkas are herders. They've clashed over grazing land for decades. Shortly after independence, the government changed regional boundaries that made those tensions worse. And at the same time, fighting erupted between the government and the Nuer rebels. Some of them fled into Furtit territory, making... Okay, you want to guess who decided to make those boundaries? I just want you to take a wild guess. That's right. That's our fantastic State Department. Let's continue. The Furtit look like rebels too. The government took aim at the Furtits, who then joined the rebellion. And a decades-old battle about cows suddenly became a civil war fueled by tribalism. Now, multiply that a few dozen times, and you'll have an understanding of how complex the dynamics are in South Sudan. Complex. Complex. They, the, the USAID went in there to destroy their economy. Obama went in there to sow the division. They paid people to sow the division. Their problem was that what? That the cows were grazing in the farmer's land. So they're like, okay, separating the land. And they gave the farmers the arid, dry land. And then they said they had a food problem. If you're sticking them in the desert, they're not going to be able to farm. And if you're not giving them infrastructure to farm in the desert, then you're causing the famine. Right. And then I thought that the U.N. wanted to get rid of cows. That's right, because they won't have shit to graze, you know, because they're not making anything. Do you see how that works? I mean, I'm just making it super pedestrian and low level here so that even the, the newest listeners can jump in. But we need to go back in time. Let's go 10 years before that. There was a ticking time bomb that I talked about a long time ago, and that was Turkey's little training center. But before that, what were they doing? How did Obama train Al-Shabaab? Or I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? I meant, how did they train Somali soldiers to fight Al-Shabaab? There we go. 
trained and ready to go. Somali troops demonstrate skills they've learned from European Union soldiers here in Western Uganda. After 10 months of military and political education, they will soon return to Somalia to fight for the transitional federal government against the armed group Al-Shabaab. We are good soldiers now, but when we are coming from Somalia, we don't know anything, but we know more things. We are now how to kill by enemy, how to kill Al-Shabaab. At this ceremony, over 600 Somali troops graduate. The program is run by soldiers from 13 EU countries. Making Somalia stable is not simple. The social fabric is complex with many competing factions. The EU says all these recruits are carefully screened to make sure none of them have links to what they call terrorist organizations. For Somalis, this job's considered a privilege. <laughs> so they don't have links to Al-Shabaab. Do they have any idea how these pirates work? Because, you know, all the pirates are in Somalia. Like, this is so insane. Like, they're going into tribal wars that they have no idea how long they've been there. These are pirates, right? And so the pirates are having fights right now in Somalia. And if you remember, there was a space that, 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 that I had a Somali on there, and he was talking about it. I was like, yo, I already know. I just didn't think that they would pop it from Sudan. All right, let me... Let me <laughs> Point is, so they had the EU <laughs> training them with their little knives. Dude, these guys have better, better skills than any of us just walking around with machetes in Somalia. For any of you that have been in Somalia, uh, you get it. Because when I was watching this video and I had to share it, it reminded me of the video of Antifa training in the woods, right? It was the most ridiculous thing. And they made this whole shebang of like, you know, here's 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 50 people that we supposedly trained and paid for and brought here. And here we go. Let's send these, you know, woke little boys back to Somalia. Now, the reason I say this is because I had told you about uh, the Turkish and Somali relations. I told you about the troops uh, that are being trained. Now, I'm going to show you from five years ago how the relations between Turkey and Somalia are. I, I already, we already talked about the military training camp that Erdogan had, has built in Somalia. Let's just revisit that in a more quick way. This space in the Somali capital city of Mogadishu is now the biggest military post and training camp Turkey has overseas. The Turkish government began its construction in March 2015 with a budget of $50 million. Somali Prime Minister Hassan Ali Khairi attended the opening ceremony and said Turkey's initiative is part of a strategic partnership that is based on mutual agreements. This military base will definitely help rehabilitate the country's armed forces and boost our capabilities to combat the terrorist groups. The military compound contains three military schools, dormitories and depots over an area of four square kilometers. A number of countries have military bases in Somalia, but this Turkish compound is said to be the only one that offers military training and education to Somali students, and the academy that will be in charge of those programs opens today. Turkey has been active in Somalia since 2011. The Turkish government has aimed to help the country strengthen its public institutions and combat the constant terror attacks. Local sources say that just a day ago, a Shabab radical group attacked an army base, killed at least 20 soldiers and looted equipment. 
I pay my condolence to the Somali government about the latest terrorist attack that killed several soldiers. With our mutual cooperation, I do believe that together we will defeat terrorism. Around 200 Turkish soldiers have been deployed at the base. They will be training more than 1,500 troops at a time. And this year's 150 students make up the first group of trainees. Analysts say Turkey has an interest to establish itself as a growing international power in this part of Africa. In this part of Africa, we all know that the geopolitical strategy of Somalia has the potential to tackle all kinds of terrorism. And Somalia hopes that with the help of Turkey, it can finally defeat the terror group that have been active throughout the country for decades. Ahmed Al-Burai, TRT Word, Mogadishu, Somalia. I want you to take a wild guess. Wild guess, who is that terror group? It's the group that Obama funded, known as Al-Shabaab. Well, Bush started it, but okay, I digress. So, so Erdogan went in there the minute South Sudan was created. Total coincidence, of course, has nothing to do with that, right? Because, you know, I, I sometimes think that they have the biggest idiots working at the State Department. Like, you've got one of the most amazing military training bases. What you saw is BS. It's like on point, right? Sitting in Somalia with a bunch of pirates, training them. Oh, wait, there's more. They also train the people in Eritrea too, right? We've got that. But Turkey has been putting their eyes in Sudan for a very, very long time. And with Chad and Dan Dan, let me show you five years ago what Erdogan was doing. You know, after all that Jill Biden shit happened, Jill and Hunter Biden and Chad, you know, funny, funny thing before we get into Chad, right? Following the fruitful visit in Sudan, pay attention. This is five years ago. This is why I'm thinking where the stupid analysts at the state department, these people have no idea what foreign policy is. Why? Because the, the central intelligence agency has their feet everywhere so they can make sure that their plans go according to plan. And guess what? You can't make plans with human beings. They are completely unreliable as variables. And this is why you see what's happening now. This is the, listen, Erdogan knew what was coming. And I said, he's a very smart guy and he's still freaking pissed about the whole Egypt thing. Hillary Clinton, but the, the Syria, the, 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 Lebanon, Libya, oh my gosh, what is coming down the pipeline is not going to be fun. Now, rumors of war, they say, well, this is an actual one that has been ongoing. And, it, and then the target is South Sudan, not the South Sudanese people, but those in power that were placed by the likes of Newland and Mali Fee and Pompeo. I'm pointing this out to you so you understand this. And so uh, the danger is that they have already built mitigations for any grenade that they had set to go. N grenade, not physical, but political. So Erdogan builds this, you know, training facility and wants to get rid of the Al-Shababians, right? And they missed Ilhan Omar. <laughs> but anyway, I digress again. <laughs> Let's go see what this, uh, you know, whole... Chad visit was post Patrick Ho being there that got done for what embezzlement. You know what's funny? And I sent this to Garrett Ziegler. I don't know if it's in Marco Polo. I ordered a copy of the book. We'll see. But 
Patrick Ho's passport was introduced in, in by the U.S. Attorney's Office when they arrested him. Now, if you pay attention to the visas, this is what's funny, right? Patrick Ho was in Chad at the time when all that Chad stuff happened. But according to Hunter Biden's email, so was Jill Biden and Hunter. But, I, you know, we totally missed that mark. And then not only that, you remember when we were sending cash pallets to Iran? Do you know who had an Iranian visit at the time of the cash being transferred? Oh, that's right. Patrick Ho. I mean, that's why he got three years for blackmailing a whole couple nations. No biggie, right? No biggie. So let's continue. That Recep Tayyip Erdogan continues his tour of Africa in Chad today. Earlier, he was in Sudan, where he addressed parliament in Khartoum on Monday. Erdogan spoke about a new roadmap drawn up between Turkey and Sudan, focusing on future relations between the two countries. The Turkish leader said he looks forward to future cooperation with Sudan. The two countries signed 12 new agreements in various fields, including security. They're also keen to boost trade ties from $500 million to $1 billion a year. Khartoum and Ankara have drawn up a roadmap for future relations, and we look forward to do more cooperation efforts in all the fields we signed. We have also signed an additional agreement between the Sudanese and Turkish armed forces. That I thought, I've just got to take some time. Oh, what happened there? YouTube went a little bit funny, didn't it? That's okay. That's totally fine. That's totally fine. That was five years ago. That was five years ago. That's okay. Let's just see the Somali president now inspecting troops from military training in Eritrea. This is from three months ago. Please. I hope you're starting to see every, every little piece from a 40,000-foot view, right? 10 years ago, five years ago. And here I'm going to show you from three months ago. Because if you didn't expect the read in a pop, well, and you're not paying attention, hence why I said there's a bunch of idiots working at the State Department pretending that, you know, they didn't expect this. And I'll tell you why. While people are telling you, oh, it's a Russia conflict. Forget the Russia conflict. They just strong-armed Erdogan to allow Finland in, right? Right? They just strong-armed him, and he's pissed. I make him right to. When you bully someone, you know, that's a fanatic, right? The Arabs will not recognize the Turkish people as Muslims because they're considered fanatics. Fanatics, right? So, President Pompeo, pay attention son, Sheikh Mohammed, on Monday inspected newly trained forces that returned from military training in Eritrea. About 5,000 troops are set to boost ongoing offensive operations against the militant group Al-Shabaab. Mohammed Kahir has the following report from Mogadishu. The president inspects the first batch of special forces in Magdish's General Gordon Army base since their return last month. They are set to be deployed in the front line to boost an ongoing offensive against Al-Shabaab. Somali people believe that your arrival is the end of Al-Shabaab. It is you to release that belief. The enemy is already vacating territories before our military reaches them. We believe the same will happen when you are on the move, but remember, despite retreat, the enemy is still around. The Defense Ministry reports that Al-Shabaab have retreated from various strategic locations 
without any major resistance since the military operations were launched six months ago. President Mahmoud underscored his government's continued willingness to welcome fighters who put down their arms. The members of the militant group are still our boys and brothers. They were radicalized and indoctrinated by extremists. We want them to give up on that ideology and violence. We will welcome them with open hands, work in various government institutions like security, or undertake their own business. But those who refuse, we will fight them. After serving in Somalia for about 15 years, African Union peacekeepers are expected to exit the country by 2024. In his New Year national address, President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud described 2023 as a year of delivery for his government, focusing on peace and stabilization of the nation, while working towards full transfer of security responsibilities to Somali armed forces by next year. Hamid Kahi, CGT and Mogadishu, Somalia. So the pirates are getting training in Eritrea too, which is their borders, which is another training camp that Erdogan has there too. So weird, right? So weird. But a lot of people aren't paying attention to what has happened. Now, let's travel back in time and talk Russia and the region. Bashir, well, allow me to just play this clip. It's a very important news report that pretty much says everything, though I have to point out, quite interesting on the CGTN news report that we just watched on Somalia, which I totally missed, Egypt was able to gain back a, get this, green coffin from the U.S., you know, one of those smuggled pieces. What's that green coffin? Does it have anything to do with Hillary Clinton's demands on those weird emails? I don't know. But I just thought I'd throw that out there for those that are curious. Now, let's see about this visit to Moscow. Each side trying to get out of this visit, do you think? Oh, well, yes, I think at first it's a bilateral visit, well, of course, between the Sudan, the Sudanese president and the well, the Russian president in Sochi, well, and not in Moscow exactly, but for Sochi, it's a, well, a very important place for the time being, for all the conflicts in the region. And I think it's not uh, just a bilateral visit, but it's an international visit in the framework of all the developments that are taking place uh, in the Middle East and in the Arab world and Muslim worlds and uh, between at uh, a higher level between America and between Russia, for example. I think that, uh, of course, uh, what can be noted is that, uh, well, by this um, diplomatic movement, Russia is trying to attract uh, the Sudan in uh, its uh, orbit, uh, diplomatic, uh, well, orbit and zone of influence. What uh, Moscow has uh, say has uh, made uh, has done the same thing with Turkey, with Saudi Arabia, with uh, other country. And I think that there is a big, uh, well, change of alliances and the change in the diplomatic and political balance in the Middle East uh, in favor of Russia that uh, has become, uh, as it is visible in every step of its demarche as the uh, uncontournable, unavoidable place uh, for all the big diplomacies in the world for the time being. Russia has become the master of the, well, most of the important diplomatic files uh, in the question, the diplomatic questions in the regions and outside of, 
out of the region. This is quite clear. And for Bashir, I think that we have noted, of course, the importance of the delegation and the importance of the well, this summit in Sochi, that's quite a symbol uh, from the Russian viewpoint because um, of all that uh, events that are taking place for the time being. And uh, well, the change, uh, the change that is uh, being expected from the Sudan uh, uh, about um, regarding, uh, for example, the, the, the Syrian conflicts. We have heard Bashir saying uh, yesterday, or the, well, on the first day of his visit, that uh, well, he sees no future for Syria without El, uh, Bashar al-Assad. I think that he was exactly saying the contrary, uh, well, some uh, some months ago. And there is a big uh, change in his position, and I think it is closely related to his rapprochement with Russia. As far as the diplomatic, uh, the International Criminal Court is concerned, I think that it's not, uh, in my view, it's not very important because Russia is uh, far from being the first country where uh, Omar Bashir goes uh, on official visit or on working visit. This is an official uh, state visit that to Russia. That is true, but if he I could just to jump Peking in. Several times, has gone I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, like you say, uh, uh, yes. Bashir has been abroad a few times since that uh, ICC indictment. Russia has no obligation to hand him over, but other countries that Bashir has visited have had that obligation and uh, and they haven't done anything about it. Is this partly, do you think, because um, of this um, accusation by some African countries of uh, being unfairly targeted uh, by the ICC? Yes, of course, we have heard it's not a question between the Sudan and International Criminal Court. It's a general accusation by many Arab countries and African countries and other countries in the world saying that there is a double standard position by the ICC. And uh, it has become, since the very beginning, after its creation, as a, a specialized tool directed against, uh, well, the, uh, let's say, the Arab countries, the African countries, and the non-Western countries. That is clearly not neutral. A neutral it is taking sides in all the conflicts, in all the, the problems. And this is the reason why so many countries do refuse to cooperate officially or unofficially with the International Criminal Court. It's the case not only for Sudan, but for many Arab and African countries. And I think that Bashir, of course, uh, it was uh, uh, quite clear that uh, going to Moscow, uh, Omar al-Bashir wouldn't be, uh, well, uh, uh, arrested in Moscow, it is clear. He was invited for a state visit, and it was uh, very uh, uh, likely that he could uh, well come back very safely. I have no doubt on, on that. Okay. And it's not only because of Russia refusing to, but many many countries in the world do refuse. The, well, the the the, con the conclusions and the decisions of the International Criminal Court that is felt and resented as being a non-neutral uh, justice. Uh, uh, court. Could you and, remind uh, us what those conclusions deep, uh, are? Sentiment. Remind us why it is that he's wanted Omar yes. by the court. Yes. Uh, 
Omar al-Bashir, by the court, I, I don't know. If Omar al-Bashir were to be, uh, you know, presented to the International Criminal Court or arrested, I think that what would be expected is for the, the International Criminal Court to call for and to, well, uh, to send uh, um, arrest uh, mandate, uh, well, for many, many uh, heads of states and not only the Arab countries and the African countries and the non-Western countries, but also many responsible of the crimes that were committed during the last 20 or 25 years. And so this is the reason why the criminal court cannot be accepted as being a neutral international justice. It is not, in my viewpoint, and in the, point, the viewpoint of many, many people, that is the reason why this international criminal court is so few respected and its decisions are not respected. This is the reason why. So in your view, then, uh, we can expect Omar al-Bashir to, to keep uh, traveling uh, in defiance of that indictment and uh, he'll probably never surrender to the ICC. Oh, yes, uh, he has no reason why to do that, uh, because the, the mandates were issued, uh, well, some 10 years ago. And I think about the Darfur question, I think that even about the Darfur question, I think that it was uh, not very just and not very accurate to send the arrest mandate against Omar al-Bashir, against the head of states. It was clearly a way of pressure of making pressure to bear on Omar al-Bashir on, on the Sudan in order to get something else and concessions. For example, about the southern conflict that was being negotiated at that time or the transitional period and uh, about the Darfur. I think you have a hidden strategies by many, many countries uh, that are quite clear. And I think that even the Sudanese government has discovered those strategies. And uh, I think that uh, about uh, partitioning the Sudan more than and between the north and the south about Darfur, for example, there is a clear attempt to maintain the pressure on the government of Sudan in order to maintain the pressure and eventually to, to get concessions on other fields, but also on the political field, maybe to, to try to reach a kind of second partition of Darfur. This is quite in the pipeline, I think. Of course, not okay. at the open, but in a hidden way. And I think that many, many experts do know that. All right. Michel Rimbaud, former French ambassador to Khartoum, thank you very much indeed for your time. She was not very happy with what he was saying. That's really weird, isn't it? But let me tell you something about the African nations for a second. Let's just, let's just understand the dynamics. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the African Development Fund, right? The African Development Fund... Sounds like something African, doesn't it? Sounds like an African fund. Well, it's part of, it's a subsidiary of the African Development Bank. <laughs> Sounds like another UN thing. And its membership is comprised of African Development Fund members. Oh, well, banking members, sorry. Uh, the countries, the bank. So, till a couple years ago, I th the last time I've I've checked, I guess. There were 38 nations, Algeria, Angola, Benin, Burkina Faso, Libya, Madagascar, Malawi, Mali, Marciana, Mauritius, Morocco, Mozambique, Nambia, Niger, Nigeria, uh, um, Rwanda, um, Egypt, Eritrea, 
Ethiopia, Gambia, Ghana, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Kenya, Eswatini, Cote d'Ivoire, which is where um, Macron is co-prince, Djibouti, Congo, the Republic of Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, right? Always liking to separate those things. <coughs> Chad, um, Comoros, uh, Cape Verde, Cameroon, Burundi, Burkina Faso, I think I said that, Benin. Um, uh, I think that's it. Yeah. You know who's not part of it? Somalia. You know who else is not part of it? Sudan. Who else is not part of it? South Sudan. Eritrea is, though. Djibouti is, though. I want you guys to be paying attention to those little things. Now, just so you know, Russia does have some partnerships, but they don't have any direct business with the ADF, which is the African Development Fund. You know, they've established partnerships by saying, you know, hey, I'll help with mining projects. You know, uh, they invested in oil and gas, kind of like what every other nation does. Hey, you're poor. You can't drill for oil. I'll set up the drill. I'll bring the oil rigs and I'll just take a cut, you know, as long as until you pay me off for building it and then I'll bounce. And then they never get to pay them off because interest, you know, whatever. Now, um, Russia has increased their influence in Africa because they're diplomatic. And actually, African nations like the Russians, right? And there's various reasons. So one is the diplomatic and economic relations that they have. Russia has established diplomatic and um, socioeconomic ties with several countries in the Middle East, even major energy exporters, because now we have the Petro Royale, right? Not petrodollar, that's dead. Um, so with Saudis and the UAE, they have built relationships by their own status as a major energy exporter, right? So they have some clout and gives it some more, you know, strategic interest and, and economic advantages to maintain good relations. Another thing is the military power. So Russia's military interventions in Syria and support for other countries in the region, such as Iran and Turkey, has demonstrated how their military is great, right? And capabilities and that they're willing to play an active role to defend the people they sign contracts with. They don't just say, yeah, we have an agreement, but you know, you're on your own, right? They actually jump in. So they're actually respected for that, and they're um, respected in the sense that they're true to their word. That's one thing um, Putin is actually known for. Um, you may not like what he says, but he's going to be straightforward with you. The other reason that African nations have good ties with Russia is that they have a very long history of engaging with the African continent from you know, uh, from back in the Soviet Union to back in the day. Now, the Soviet Union had created some really close economic military ties with several nations in the region, like Iraq and Egypt and Syria, right? But their engagement in the Middle East has also been shaped by their historic Orthodox Christian heritage, which um, is shared. It's a cultural shared religious identity with countries in the region. So that plays a very big role right? It's more of a tribal thing, something that people in the United States do not understand because that's culturally ingrained in you, right? So they are more willing to trust an Orthodox Christian than they are a Catholic because they share that religion together. 
I'm pointing that out. And Muslims are actually more favorable to Orthodox Christians as opposed to other denominations of Christianity. Someone's going to be like, why? Because culturally they share common factors. These are, these are things, you know, you can't learn in a textbook, right? You have to understand it. Okay. So, um, these are facts. And, um, aside from that, they're actually perceived as a counterbalance to the EU and in general, the West, including the United States. You know, people of the Middle East kind of see Russia as like a counterbalance to the West, right? And the fact that Russia opposes Western interventionism and supports, um, you know, independent governments um, is a big deal for them. And, you know, Russia has always been critical of the United States and their allies, right, the West, to, uh, you know, kind of come in and come under the guise of helping and then destroying them, right? So <clears throat> they like the Russians. Now, the Chinese, well, that's where the real key is. So the Chinese has been heavily involved in building railroads. They even built our railroads in the United States, remember? So China has been involved in the construction of over two and a half, it's about two and a half thousand kilometers worth of railway between um, uh, Tehran and Mashhad, right? And that was to help transportation, trade links between China b between them like they they China is all about trains they even link the port of Haifa in Israel to the city of Bet Shan which is supposed to be increasing the transport links between Israel and China I want you guys to understand what the Chinese have been doing while everybody has been sleeping and this is and this is a problem we don't have actual news agencies that master I mean we don't even have people in the State Department that understand these dynamics let alone expecting someone to come on the horn or your TV to explain it to you okay so Remember, the Chinese built our railroads. They're building railroads everywhere. They're experts, and I think I showed you the video where they laid out track like nobody's business, right? And I've talked about the Silk Road. I've talked about the railroads and their expansions, but, you know, here they are coming full circle so you can understand the dynamics that are going on there. Now, China has also signed several agreements with other countries within that region, in the Middle East specifically, including Saudi Arabia and the UAE, uh, you know, to, in you know, help in the development of transportation infrastructure, including railways, right? Remember that video where Putin was on the train and he was going 300 kilometers, you know, an hour. That's pretty fast, right? So um, China's involvement in creating infrastructure projects connecting the Asian, the European, and the African continent are insane. They buy up a lot of seaports. That's what they've done in the Med. They've built a lot of railways, right? And get this. In Somalia, right, the country's rail infrastructure was annihilated in the 90s because of their civil war, right? Now, they've been trying to, like, rebuild. I remember how they were begging for money, um, you know, through some communications that I saw trying to get their uh, Mogadishu Railroad redone, like, whatever. But... In Sudan, there were a couple of rail lines that were from back, we're talking like colonial times, okay, guys? But um, it suffered, like nobody used that. It was like neglected. There were no investments. You know, they have no money. But 
But China in Sudan entered the picture in 2015, and they signed an agreement to build a new railway between Khartoum and Port Sudan, which would connect Sudan's capital with the country's main seaport in the Red Sea. That's a big deal, right? And China's all about making money. And, you know, President Trump was right on this. The Chinese are eating our freaking lunch. They're making money everywhere. Everywhere. The Chinese are smart. They're using a covert template. It's fantastic. I mean, you have to appreciate the genius in this, okay? They're just like, yeah, 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 we're friends. As long as they're making money, they don't care. Because once they make money and establish, that's when teeth come out. They're very patient. And they've always been like that for a very long time. That's why President Trump was so hard on President Xi. But now we have a sellout, right? Like Joe Biden, who signed on with CAA China, playing president who can't tie a shoe. And then we're wondering why we're losing control completely of the African continent. And now we've got U.S. troops sitting on the outskirts of Djibouti. I would be terrified being part of AFRICOM right now, terrified because this could go really pear-shaped for us, really pear-shaped. May, may God have mercy on us, seriously, because this is really bad. Uh, you know, when, when President Trump gets into office, he needs to put the right people at the top. We need to gut the State Department. We have complete idiots that are friends of friends of friends of friends. It's, 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 it's yes boys and yes girls that they hire rather than people that have the cultural nuance to understand why relations are the way they are. There is no cultural acclimation, and I'm sorry, but there is no freaking way. You could go to school and you could take a course in freaking, I don't know, French right? And then, you know, immerse yourself in French at school or at the Defense Language Institute and then go to France and understand their dynamics. No, because you won't even know what their fast food is. You will look like a tourist. You will be the one cutting the steak wrong and Hitler will shoot you right at the table. That's the problem that we have. We don't have knowledgeable people that have an affinity for these things. And that is the biggest problem we have. We cannot have these people representing us overseas because right now South Sudan is going to be the new pocket of making money. It's almost as if Newland and Mali Fee are on the cut with these military industrial complexes that are just coming in and making a shit ton of money off of things that they created in the first place, which drives me insane. Now, speaking of China, let's talk about the geopolitics of Turkey in the Red Sea. So you can see how it comes into a bricks full circle. Constraints of the Cold War era world order and led by Recep Tayyip Erdogan's Justice and Development Party, or AKP, Turkey is once again taking its position as an important regional power. In the shadow of its Ottoman legacy, Turkey has begun a campaign of influence in areas it considers pertinent to its interests. While many analysts have chosen to focus on Turkish moves in areas such as the Middle East, the Caucasus and the Balkans, one area that has been paid less attention is the Red Sea. This key waterway, which sees the through flow of 720,000 barrels of oil a day and 9% of the world's trade, has drawn the attention of a resurgent Turkey, with growing implications for the region. Turkey's key objective in the Red Sea is leverage. By gaining influence in the geostrategically important Red Sea, Turkey can exert leverage on other states on a regional and global scale. The more influence Turkey has, the more it can gain for itself in negotiating with or competing with other countries. If Turkey becomes a player in the Red Sea, states with their own geostrategic interests there will have to consider Turkish interests both in the Red Sea region and other areas where their own interests coincide with Turkish ones. 
Moreover, Turkish involvement comes amid wider tensions in the Middle East, with states such as the UAE and Saudi Arabia looking to establish themselves in the Red Sea and the Horn of Africa too. If Turkey is first to the game, then it will have more chance of winning. Turkey's increasing presence in the Red Sea comes amid its wider pivot to Africa. Africa's development potential and natural resources, combined with Turkey's Ottoman legacy, has seen the state make soft power plays across the continent, with trade and investment initiatives as well as humanitarian action being the main form of engagement. As is the case with Turkey's wider pivot to Africa, its moves in the Red Sea have a profit motive, and the state can expect lucrative returns if it plays its cards right. By taking a strategic posture in the Red Sea, Turkey can build its kinetic power capacity there, building further leverage with states which rely on the sea as a trade, shipping and military route. A military presence in the Red Sea could afford Turkey the same level of leverage states such as Egypt and Djibouti generate from its geostrategic choke points in the Suez Canal and Bab el-Mandeb. Additionally, a military presence in the region allows Turkey to protect its own economic interests, thereby providing much-needed stability, though this provision has been criticised by some leaders in the region. In January 2017, Turkey secured a 99-year lease on the island of Suakin from Sudan, with the stated aim of rebuilding the former Ottoman port city on the state's Red Sea coast. This small island was once an important naval base for the Ottoman Empire, owing to its position on the Red Sea and proximity to the Islamic holy site of Mecca. And How many times have I told you that Erdogan is salty about them taking away and tearing down the Ottoman Empire because of the genocide that they were doing? I've told you this many, many, many times. This is why they went for Erdogan right now. Right? You know, heart attacks strokes, well, mostly heart attacks. They feel like stomach aches, right? They do. And that's terrible, but it's already been established. So what's going on? They had really good relations. You know that the U.S. had great relations with Turkey, but when did they go sour? Well, it went sour under John Brennan, right? If you guys remember what happened, right? So look, when he became CIA director on my birthday in 2013, he oversaw all of the CIA's efforts to monitor and analyze security threats in Sudan, including their ongoing conflict that they have in Darfur and other parts, just fires, right? And they were like sharing intelligence with Sudanese authorities to support peacekeeping operations in the region. Now, number one, Sudanese, Sudan itself is non-American friendly. So whatever intelligence he would get, it wouldn't be voluntarily. In South Sudan, Brennan was involved in, uh, you know, ensuring that the country gained, you know, making sure that the independent South Sudan, you know, when the U.S. decided we're creating a new country, ta-da, in the smack center of Africa, ta-da, he oversaw the CIA's efforts to track and disarm uh, groups that were operating in the region that were trying to get South Sudan to become a unified Sudan. But John Brennan and Erdogan had a relationship that's complicated, right? It started off on a good foot, right? They have commonalities in regards to religion and outviews, I guess, right? Uh, well, you know, he's, he's only Muslim when he's talking to Muslims, okay? Let's just be straight. He's like a down-to-earth atheist, right? <laughs> That's what he is. His God is power. So they had a good relationship, and, um, you know, 
I could tell you, I know that for a fact. You know, uh, he was, and a lot of people at the agency are like, damn, this guy is going to get back to Ottoman Empire. I've told you that so many times. He's so salty over the murder of his friend in Egypt too. But anyway, but in 2016, when they saw that nations were demanding economic independence and increasing competitiveness, and President Trump was like, yo, just mind your own business, build your own nations, be competitive, because us, as Americans, we can compete in, in a heartbeat, because we have all the innovation we need. We don't have constraints in our society. We're not going to be doing the whole, his son, his daughter, you know, the politics that play overseas, right? We can compete. So let's just go back to healthy competition. But no. Turkey accused him of supporting a failed coup attempt against Erdogan's government. Which, um, Brennan always says, we never use priests and bullshit. Anyway, uh, so anyway, regardless, one of our own, right? Whatever. And this coup was a problem, and uh, that's where it all began. Following that coup attempt, Brennan was critical in regards to Erdogan's crackdown on political opponents and journalists calling it dangerous and excessive as a response. But Brennan, the reason that, you know, Khashoggi got done in is because Khashoggi was working a lot of fronts, had nothing to do with the Saudis, but okay. Now, um, that was Erdogan's territory. I know it's a Saudi embassy, but it's on Turkish soil. So let's be fair. Now, Erdogan had expressed concerns of um, journalists in his nation, but Brennan had a concern about Turkey's close relationship with Russia and the deteriorating relationship with the U.S. and NATO allies. Now, I've stated to you, in order, the biggest armies of NATO are the U.S., then it's Turkey, then it's Greece. And if you remember President Trump so smartly created almost like a secondary base in Greece, very smart, because the Greeks have already forfeited their, you know, independence, right? They're part of the, they're owned. The hole in their underwear is owned by the Germans. But the one thing about the Greeks is that with sticks and stones, they kept Hitler and Mussolini at bay. So never underestimate a pissed off Greek. Um, just saying. And it would be a secret weapon when stuff hits the fan for Turkey, but that'll be fanned out by those flames will quickly die down by Putin. You'll see soon. So this strained relationship with Russia has been happening with uh, Turkey has been happening with the U S for a very, very long time. And as you've noticed over the past, you know, hour or so that I've been talking, the Russians and the Chinese have done a lot of deals with that area. The only real American presence is in South Sudan. And that's on fire right now. Now let's continue. Oops. Gosh darn it. Why do I do that to myself? Here we go. And it's gateway cheddar. In the modern day, Sawakin's strategic position will give Turkey both economic and kinetic military leverage. By securing Sawakin and developing it as an economic hub, Turkey gains another point of access to Africa through which it can pursue the extraction of natural resources while also expanding its potential for export markets of its own goods. 
with Africa's population expected to grow to 4.5 billion or 40% of the world's population by 2100. It is unquestionable that Ankara will benefit from this growing export market which can be accessed through the port. As mentioned prior, Turkey wishes to increase its kinetic power projection capacity in the Red Sea area, and Suakin's geostrategic position is perfect for this purpose. The island's proximity to important global shipping lanes and its location to the south of rival Egypt's Suez Canal and west of Saudi Arabia will give Turkey huge geopolitical leverage if it chooses to militarise it. Were a conflict to occur, Turkey could cause major issues for shipping and military traffic for any adversarial state in the Red Sea from a base in Suakin. With Turkey's TCG Anadolu light aircraft carrier ready to take to the seas at the end of this year, Turkey will have ample kinetic power projection capacity in the region from the sheltered waters of Suakin. Guys, to think of this for a second, we've got Iran, right? Let me pull a map up for those of you that are not familiar with the region. Hold on. Pull a map. A map up so you guys can see the region. Um, so I can help. Those that aren't familiar with the with the area, okay. I mean, this kind of helps a little bit. Let me see if I could get that up because I know a lot of people aren't like super knowledgeable on maps. So I'm I'm gonna pull up a map of the Horn of Africa, and um, that way you can see the region so you can understand what's really going on. I want to find the right one for you. Mm, there we go. That one's a pretty good one. Political map. There we go. All right. So let me let me share that. Because I know a lot of people aren't very knowledgeable, and it's the fault of our education system. Uh, where, um, by the way, um, right here is where. <laughs> co-prince but okay you see where turkey is it's up here Wait, hold i don't have a pointer you know i will have a whiteboard and a pointer for my um you know maybe i should get one of those digital whiteboards i don't know we'll see um so i can sh show people things but this is good okay so my mouse is here let me just make sure you're seeing it okay you are all right um let's go all right, let me show you. So over here's Turkey, and here's Syria. Here's Iraq. Here's Iran, Saudi Arabia, right? And here's where the issues are, South Sudan, as you can see. Here we are. This is the Central African Republic. Here's Chad, right? This is Obama land right here, right? Kenya's down. Egypt, Port Sudan. This is Sudan, South Sudan. So we took that little piece and cut it off and said, nope. Here's Ethiopia, which, by the way, there's an ongoing slaughter uh, of Christians there at like crazy. Here's Somalia. Here's Djibouti. So we're hanging out, <laughs> right? Here's Eritrea, where the troops of Somalia were being trained, right? In Turkish schools, Turkish schools, Turkish schools, right? Turkish. Are you seeing the pattern here? Red Sea. You see it here? Do you guys see it? Egypt. You see it? So this is the stronghold right now at the heart of Africa that people like, um, you know, Mali Fee and whatnot have destroyed these areas right here. These are politics of Bush and Obama, complete destruction, complete destruction.
And all these regions, right, have been developed by the Chinese and the Russians. Saudi Arabia is in the middle. Can you see that? This is why the dynamics with Saudi Arabia are so odd. When you see it on a map, you start to understand it better, right? You start to see it better when you see it on a map. And then we have, you know, kind of over here, right? We have Jordan, right? The king of Jordan. Remember how he expelled Pelosi from his office? He's like, get out of here, right? You see, we have a Russian base over here, big Russian naval base over here. Now, the heat's turning up over here. While there's chaos happening here, super chaos happening here, and we've just landed troops over here. Like, why would you go there? I would, I would prefer them somewhere in Chad as opposed to there. And they can't go to Libya because Tripoli, this little section over here, is the only UN-controlled place. All of this is under the control of General Haftar. Now, we've talked about him before, right? And so we've got one, two, three... Four, five, six, Yemen, of course, seven. This is kind of a tight, this is a weird dynamic here. They, these two hate them. These guys hate them. But they're all kind of neutral when it comes to the U.S. And then we have Kuwait sitting over here, right? I want you guys to understand the dynamics of what's going on here. We, as a nation, had implemented policies that were contraindicating to what we were portraying. And they are blowing up in our face right now. We are so lucky that this is recoverable. Nobody can see the pointer, they said. You can't see my pointer going around over here. Can you guys see it? No? Well, I guess you just have to look at the map. But it's important for us to understand what we're looking at so you can understand what big of a region of conflict we have here. This is a massive region of conflict, right? And the only buffers right now are over here. And that puts the Biden regime in a very vulnerable position. Don't forget the high five of MBS with Russia, which is up that way, right? Don't forget the high five. Don't forget he kicked out Pelosi. Don't forget. And right now, to be fair, if I was Israel, I would be really terrified. I would be terrified, completely terrified. Because if Saudi Arabia is the only lifeline the West seems to think they have, and whatever control they still have in Iraq, which is pretty much gone, Israel could be in a very difficult position, right? Very difficult position. So, I mean, they're last. So it could be a very difficult, difficult thing. But let's move on so we can understand more of this war now that you saw the map. It's important for you to go to what's going on with this nation that was created out of nowhere and how Sudan is now disallowing flights between Sudan and South Sudan. There's no North Sudan. There's just a Sudan. Remember that. So this report is coming from African News. This is from six days ago. 
South Sudan's government says fighting in Khartoum is disrupting air transport in South Sudan. A large part of South Sudan's airspace is still controlled from Khartoum. CGTN's Patrick Ayet reports from Juba. South Sudan's government says some international flights have been halted following fighting between rival military factions in Sudan. The flights affected include those of Turkish Airlines, Egypt Air and Flight Dubai. South Sudan attained independence from Sudan in 2011, but the two countries still share many resources. South Sudan uh, air, the upper airspace, uh, that is 250, the, the upper airspace, our uh, airspace uh, was still being managed by Sudan because the radar, uh, we, are, we are working on ATM, the air, tra air traffic uh, control, we are being helped by our brothers from uh, China. Uh, they have done some excellent work. One of the contractors has almost uh, finished. So the lower airspace, 245, is approachable. So flight coming, there are two routes. The route approaching from Upper Nile, meaning from uh, Malakal, that is, you are coming from Sudan. Their route is affected. There is also a route coming from Eritrea, as you crossed Western uh, Ethiopia, is also, that route is also affected. South Sudan's government says it is working closely with those affected airlines to reroute flights. It says that will lead to an increase in ticketing fares. South Sudan's government says regional airlines such as Ugandan Airlines, Kenya Airways and Rwanda Air are still easily accessing Juba International Airport. Patrick Oyet, CGTN, Juba, South Sudan. So I hope you guys heard that. China is now in South Sudan. I hope you guys are paying attention to that. China is now in South Sudan building air traffic control. Flights that are coming in from the north, right? Uh, let me go back to the map so I could share it with you so you can visualize what they said. So as you can see on the map here, right? So flights that are coming from here, right? Eritrea, Sudan, because there's certain flight paths, right? They're being, they have a problem, but those coming from Kenya, south and west are having no problem getting to Juba. It's this territory, right? This northwestern territory that's the problem. But don't worry, the Chinese are making their new air traffic control and they're doing a great job and it's going to be totally fine. So now let's go back in time to two years ago. Let's go to Turkey so we can find out, you know, how um, Erdogan caught a little bit of stengem. Let's go. This village on the outskirts of Sudan's southeastern city of Atamazin, it's time for school. It's a bit crammed, but the children are happy. This is what their previous school looked like. When the Turks saw all children sitting on stones in these huts, they built us the school. We are grateful to them. We hope they will continue to help us more. While the children are at school, their mothers face a never-ending struggle to find water. Turkish government agencies are trying to address that too. The Turkish Cooperation and Coordination Agency, or TIKA, has so far dug 90 wells across Sudan. Turkey's Religious Affairs Directorate, known as Diyanet, 
has also been working on water projects. To deal with the water challenge, teams from Turkey's Diyanet Foundation have been surveying different parts of Sudan and they've been setting up units like these that include a well as well as a pumping station and a storage tank. Each unit, they tell us, costs about $50,000 and the tank can store about 10,000 gallons of water. Ankara has been working with Khartoum to increase trade and investment. Trade between the two countries is currently worth just over half a billion dollars a year. Ankara wants that figure to hit 10 billion over the next decade. In 2018, Ankara signed 13 agreements with the government of Sudan for cooperation in defense, mining, agriculture, science, environment and education sectors. Turkey has also constructed a 150-bed hospital with 46 intensive care beds, three operating theatres, as well as gynaecology and radiology departments. So no need to see more of how Turkey, China and Russia have full, unfettered access and have been supporting nations that we have been supposedly supporting in this region. They have been supporting South and Sudan, Somalia. Ethiopia is kind of like a, you know, Erdogan doesn't really like them. You know, they're the ones that had the Ark of the Covenant. They're extremely, you know, when you think of the Orthodox Christian religion, you know, I want to say, well, you know, Apostle Paul died in Greece and it's a Greek. It's totally not. It was written Greek because that was a cultivated language. But if someone was to ask me my opinion, I would say the heart of Orthodoxy sits in Ethiopia. And that's my assessment. So just saying, as you can see, the dynamics are a little bit more complicated than what people tell you. And the power that the U.S. has in the northeast region of Africa has been quickly declining. And that's thanks to this administration. They're so busy going all in with the UN as if they're going to save them. And so busy in controlling us and pushing forward that they're not paying attention to the things that they should be paying attention to. The geopolitics in the region is very complicated. But here again, I want to show you how the State Department has been paying to people, you know, you see things like $100, 500 bucks, and you're like, no big deal. Let me show you what it's really like in South Sudan when you work so you can understand how far $130 takes you. It's soaking wet. If Inesha is cool, it will be coffee, coffee. You know the Africa? Africa. What about Africa? What do I know about Africa? We are here. Soldiers. Soldiers are the one fighting. How old are you? I'm 18 years old. You're 18? Yeah. Wow. You're very mature. You just got to be careful. See, there's one... There's one just there now. Gangs. There's gangs here. Yes, they used to attack us. Look, look, can pin that appear. Yeah, I've got permission. I think he wants money, right? <laughs> you know the situation of Yeah. So they work all day long, every day, just so they can eat one meal. It's actually a graveyard, but people are living on top of the graves. So this is the kitchen, obviously, right? And then this is the bedroom. We just saw a soldier on the ground with his hands tied behind his back and somebody had taken his gun off him. South Sudan, the world's newest country, only gaining independence in 2011. And after gaining that independence, plummeted into civil war. South Sudan's civil war. Ethnic-based violence. 
400,000 died, 4 million were displaced. That civil war has now led to the near collapse of the country. Although fighting has died down in some areas of the country, it continues to rage on in others. Hunger and malnutrition rife throughout the country. South Sudan is the world's most dangerous country for an aid worker. South Sudan is the most violent place in the world for aid workers. With humanitarians constantly being targeted. Tribal violence occurs every single day. Flooding has absolutely ravaged the country. The people who live here have never experienced anything like this. My house is still underwater. Vast areas lie underwater. I've wanted to go to South Sudan for a long time. This trip has been two years in the making. The world's youngest country is tearing itself apart. Civil war has torn the world's youngest country apart. So I can live and die here later. So. Rapid descent into civil war has broken. But there isn't much the US or its allies can do. Your name? My name Divi. The near collapse of the country. Nice to meet you. Fighting each other. This is where it gets very dangerous. Welcome back to Juba, capital city of South Sudan here. Today we're going to go through the town, have a look around the city, some different areas. Later we're going to go to this big slum camp area where people are basically fleeing from violence. But for now we're going to go explore the city, see what this relatively undocumented country has to offer. <laughs> So we've just arrived at this, it's actually a graveyard, but people are living on top of the graves. Hello? Initially this was a graveyard, but the government has closed and fenced it off. But you have seen people have encroached and settled on it, and this is where they are with their families. Estella, mm. nice to meet you. Yeah, Nick, mm. is this wine or moonshine? It's actually alcohol. Yeah, yeah, moonshine. They call it wariki or moonshine. Uh -huh. And then they sell that, right? And that's yeah, the income. Yeah, yeah. This is where she lives. Uh -huh. Thank you, shukran. shukran. So this is the kitchen, obviously, right? And then this is the bedroom. It's quite, quite nice in here. It's quite nice. Nice uh, light, like floor has plastic on it and the beds and... And it's waterproof? Does it flood? Yeah, it is still... There's a slum on the other side of the river. There's cartons of beer here as well. Empty bottles, full bottles. Four for two thousand. Four for two thousand. Uh, yeah, four two thousand. Okay. Yeah. And did you catch these fish? Eh? You catching from the river? Yeah. River? Okay. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Right, right. I'm catching. Yeah. Shukran. <laughs> okay. <wait. laughs> had to get out of that place because although it seemed calm apparently there's lots of undercover agents in there and what had actually happened there was that soldier had tried to shoot a colleague of his and he was drunk like I said and, and they had to pin him down and tie him up then this car showed up and thought that we were there to film what had happened but it was just a coincidence there's lots of plain clothes people around that you don't know what they actually do for a job sometimes you'll see soldiers driving super fast down the street beeping beeping and clearing the road then like a convoy of like eight brand new Toyota Land Cruisers, the highest versions of them. And there's soldiers everywhere here, but yeah, you just got to be careful. See, there's one, there's one just there now. So 
Yeah, you can see I'm, I'm a bit on edge. It's just you have to be super careful with the camera here. People are everywhere. If I didn't have this paperwork and clearance, I would have been big fence around with barbed wire. There are just notate something. In a place like South Sudan or in Somalia, as you saw at the beginning of the video, they all hold machetes. They will slice you in the middle of the road because they feel like it. You look at them the wrong way and they can take you out and go find a way to fix this. In this day and age of 2023, no nation, no area of this world that has been explored so far should have anyone living in the squalor that you watch right now. So all of us have to admit that it's the power of the Western and Eastern nations that allow this to perpetuate because they cause programs within there to constantly look like they're doing something when they're not. But if you see the title, it says inside South Sudan's capital city, $2 a month is a salary. So when you see the State Department paying unknown individuals $130, that's a very big deal. Especially when they've been handing out that money this past year, like it's been candy. You have to wonder, what are they funding? Because to you, 100 bucks may not be a lot, but these people live off of $2 a month. Allowed to leave, but if they do leave because of the intertribal violence, these people in this camp are of a different tribe, so they get targeted, and that's actually why they're living here. They fled from all around South Sudan to come here for refuge, essentially. What's your name? Siva. Siva? Nice to meet you. Yeah. Nice to meet you. What was your name, sir? My name is Viva. Vega? Yeah. Okay. I'm Nick. And how is life here? Ah, uh, somehow. It's okay? Or no. bad? Somehow. Somehow, so yeah. not good. Yeah. So there's like gang, like street yeah, gangs. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 There's those group. And they come around and they like take yeah. your belongings. Yeah, they take your phone and take your uh, whatever you have in your pocket. So is it quite dangerous here? Yeah. It's dangerous? Yeah. How old are you? 25. 25? Yeah. Wow, okay. Are your parents back in the village? In the village, right, right. How far? Three days or four days. Four days? Yeah, with a car. In a car? Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. This is your house? Yeah. Hello. How are you? Good, how are you? Fine. Wow, nice to meet you. You speak English? No. Ah, nice to meet you. No, there's no. Okay, so the, it's all mud floor and um, it's flooded and there's buckets here. And uh, see, that's water. And here's the bed here. It's soaking wet. It's damp. Yeah, it's wet. The mattress is wet, right? Kids are hello. They're very smiley, but you know, obviously you've heard they're going through absolute nightmare of a situation. So we've come to a, a local butcher here in the camp. Who's the main market? Can everybody afford meat here? Okay. People try to get meat, but not everyone can afford, as you know. What is life like living in this camp? Is it difficult or is it pleasant? So he has been here for the last three months only and he seems to be appreciating it. Why did you come here three months ago? He only came as a businessman. 
Okay, so it's purely business. It's purely business. He's right. not. He's not an IDP himself. Okay. It's a business. Shukran. All right. So we've drawn quite the audience, as you can see, but we're here with Kankil. Is that right? Yes. And how old are you, Kankil? I'm 20 years old. 20. Yeah. Right. You're quite tall. Yeah. Tall man. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And okay. how long have you lived in this camp for? Hello? Yeah. 12. Yeah. 12 years. Yeah. And can you leave the camp? Can you go out into the city? No. No. Yeah. Why? Like because I, I don't have a passport for going there. Is it dangerous? And the situation is very worse. You know the situation of Sudan. Yeah. They have war. It's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. And do you hope to go back to your village or your town one day? They want to go to our our area there, but the situation is uh, it's not good there. So you have to stay because yeah. it's just too dangerous to leave. Yeah. What's life like in this camp? But the life is bad, but it's not good. Not good. Yeah, it's not good. Why? What's bad? Because now we see around us now we are, we are not top life. You're hungry. Yes. Right. You know me. I'm, now I'm a very thin. Skinny. Because it's never good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're a tall guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That is why. Yeah. Right. And are you, are you with your family or alone? No, it's me alone. Just you. Yes. Thank you for your time. Good luck. We've come to a local restaurant here, and some of the ladies are gonna show us what they're cooking. Right. Oh, you're just boiling the water. <laughs> Hi, my name's Nick. My name's Andrew. Nice to meet you. You live in the camp? Yeah, I live here in the camp. And can you leave the camp or you have to stay? If, if things goes well, okay. maybe we can. Like you now, what I can see, things are not well. Here, like in South Sudan, things are not going well now. Okay. We, are, we have lost a lot of things, actually, we know it. That's why we are here. We don't have homes to stay, that's why we are living in a camp. What happened to your homes? We, we lose everything, actually. What like ha what happened? Did somebody come and, and take your house? Our properties, everything, we lose them. Right. Yeah. And how long have you lived here for? How many years? Some, since, in, since 2013. 2013? Yeah, up so to nine now. nine years? <laughs> yeah, nine years. You don't think that you'll be leaving soon? We don't, if things goes well actually, right. that's where I maybe we'll go, but if things are like that, maybe we'll stay here. Can you explain some of the things, like it's really bad violence? By that time I was very young, like we used to see just people are fighting, like soldiers, soldiers are the one fighting. Shooting? Yeah, they are shooting themselves, that's why we ran here. They're fighting each other? Yeah. And do they shoot? Um, yeah, they shoot. Local people? Mm, yeah. Okay. And, and your parents you came here with, or alone? Yeah, my parents are here with me. Okay. And, and how old are you? I'm 18 years old. You're 18? Yeah. Wow, you're very mature. Oh well, thank you for your time, I really appreciate it. Have a good day. Or is it bad, or is it in between? Since the crisis began in South Sudan, life is totally changed. Changed for, for the worst? Yes. Okay. For the last 10 or so years, it's been bad. Right. Life is too difficult. And do you think it will get better, or no? No. See, any country that Obama gets involved in goes tits up. Can you see it now? South Sudan was created by Barack Hussein Obama. They had all their properties taken away 
because they decided, the Troika decided to separate Sudan. This is Obama's work. That was what he did as his one-term senator before becoming president. I want you guys to pay attention. South Sudan, we feel for you. He destroyed our nation too. He destroyed our nation too. I mean, look at that. They just sequestered half of Sudan. We got a lot of semiconductive properties right there for them, huh? Let's continue just a little bit more so you can see the impact when people that don't belong to a nation decide to draw a line and separate them. No, worse. Keep going down. Oh, really? You're sure? sure. 100%. Okay. And what needs to change for that not to happen? All the thing we need is a peace. Peace? Yeah. No more fighting. fighting. Violence. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, mate. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. Are you? Yes. Okay, great. This is one of the local ways to make money, so they get uh, charcoal delivered. Money, money. 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 No money. No money. No money. No good. If there was a way he could get money, he would not do it. But this is the only option where he can raise some money. To make ends meet. So we've just come to the UNICEF clinic here. This is where they give out something called RUTF, which is ready to use therapeutic food. 500 calories for one of these, and it's for malnourished kids. It's basically like a scientifically formulated peanut butter along the lines that if I could compare it to any food, they give these to the severely malnourished kids. So this armband measuring tape here measures for malnutrition. Green is in the clear, and red is severe malnutrition, and yellow is in between. Akan used to be red, but now Yellow. Yes. So we've met another child here called Bum Koss, and we're going to measure the arm right now. So that's severe. Severe. It's red. Yeah. yeah. So now eating the RUTF, and then hopefully in a month, maybe yellow. Okay. Wonderful. What would happen if you couldn't get these RUTF? If she didn't get this, chances are it could have worsened, or even she could lose the child to malnutrition. The RUTF is so essential. Very. You can see some pretty hard-hitting scenes in there, but some hopeful stories as well. Okay, so we've come into this hospital area, which is actually for uh, children who are facing severe malnutrition, but with added medical issues. So we're here with Hadir, right? Okay, and what are you, why are you here? I brought a child. You brought your child, and your child is malnourished? Is it hard to get food for you? Yeah, it is hard. Hungry baby? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Can't eat. Can't eat. He's sick. Yeah. And how long have you been in this hospital for? Almost for six days today. Six days? How long do you think you'll stay? It's according to the healing of the baby. And what's your baby's name? He's called Junior. Junior? Yeah. Oh, wow, beautiful. He can't see, he can't see it even, he can't support his neck. He can't, like, see? Yeah, he's blind. He's blind? Yeah. Okay. You're very worried about your baby? Yeah. When yeah. the baby is sick, I'll be worried. You're worried? Thank you very much. Thank you. Good luck. Yeah, I'm very hopeful. That's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Without hope, there's no reason. As you can see, the COVID-19 protocol 
is right up on the screen there. I want you guys to be paying attention. Aside from the fact that these people are war-torn and it breaks our heart that in this day and age, this is happening. We can see all the fingerprints of who, what, when, where. This is very sad. But I want you guys to understand when people are talking about war, what's actually really going on. These people are being attacked on all fronts. There is no excuse for what we see. I know right now, out of all of you watching and those that are listening, wherever you may be, all of us would be able to solve that conflict faster than any of these idiots at the State Department. It's exactly what President Trump had said. We need to give more power back to the nations to deal with their issues. We cannot be inserting ourselves in wars that, have no that we have no business in. We could have, like the Russians, like the Chinese, like the Saudis, propel the economic development while also making money and be competitive and actually help them out of what they are. But how do we justify millions, trillions of U.S. dollars going into these regions and still having these issues? It's almost as if they're creating the problems so they can pretend to be providing solutions. This is exactly what's going on in South Sudan. I am embarrassed for us. We are the laughing stock of the whole world right now with the regime that is up, but it's okay. It's temporary. It's to clean our house. We need to clean our nation from all these people. And what we can do is do one of the most important things and at least say a prayer. It's just a simple couple minutes a day for resolution to come about and for us to no longer have to watch these things happening. So many people are so involved with things that don't matter. Does it matter where Tucker is going right now? Or does it matter that there's people dying somewhere in the world? Some, some child is starving. And there are ways that we can stop that. I'm just saying, I know it sounds so kumbaya, but it's fact. I love my country. I simply adore my country. I am ashamed of the way things have gone. And you know, the more I think of all the conversations I've had over the past week with people of uh, influence for, in regards to our domestic and foreign policies, I could say I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that they believe that we can still continue on this path with policies that have never worked for us. And they continue to perpetuate them. It's almost as, as if, oh, I can't. They're now playing, you know, Russian roulette with what the next pandemic will be. And here we are talking about the media, gossip, while we still haven't fixed the process of elections. We cannot have fair elections while 
our elections are federalized. I don't hear enough people calling it what it is. Our elections have been federalized and we have absolutely no say. 2020 demonstrated that. 2019 demonstrated that. 2018 demonstrated that. 2017 demonstrated that. DHS runs your elections. It's quite simple. You have no say. And your, your target and what you should be busy doing is making sure your elections are not conducted on electronic devices. That is what you need to focus on. Everything else is noise. Everything else is noise. I can tell you this, and I'm not one. I'll just say it. There are a lot of things going on in the background. There are a lot of people in a lot of trouble. But they're keeping up appearances. There's a lot of things happening. But remember, Harriet Tubman would not have been able to conduct her underground railroad if the people didn't back her. George Washington wouldn't have been able to do shit if the people didn't back him. President Trump, as president, did one of the most important things ever. While hogtied, he tried to demonstrate how incredible America is. How incredible it can be without war. How incredible it can be when we increase our competitiveness. How incredible it can be when we do not bend the knee to foreign powers and how incredible it is to finally be respected. Taking it back, just what, one, two, 2023, 20, three decades ago. As a child, I remember how everyone would fawn over stupid t-shirts for Maui and Sons because they were made in America and the quality was incredible and everybody wanted it. Now everything's made in China. Nike makes shoes in China and Turkey. And then we wonder how they're eating our lunch. The corporations have done this because they believe that they've created a consumer-driven homo sapien and that their goods dictate the future. And boy, did President Trump prove them wrong. While many sit there, he's not this, he's not that. You have no idea what a genius that man is. I mean, after all, I think I heard him say it himself. Our next elections, which will be done properly, will be so overwhelming that that billboard, 120 million votes, is going to make sense to you. It's about time that we take back our nation. And what, should it be in the hands of a few people that planned out little pockets and made gentlemen's deals to help the United States? As you could see, even Fox News money laundered. I mean, they're using the courts to money freaking launder. The payout to Dominion was a money laundering scheme. That's it. They're using the courts to money launder. I mean, what else can we say? But they're important. You must listen. No. 
You should be getting active in your local community and making sure that your elections are rectified. Don't wait for others to do it for you. They're not in your neighborhood. They could give two shits about your street. They're worried about their own. And let's hope that their next lockdown doesn't come in hard. I mean, you saw what's going on in Peru. And Mark Berg's is around the corner. That's all they need. Meanwhile, your federal tax dollars are trying to gain a bit of, uh, what is it called? A bit of land to buffer the zone with Russia. They take out Turkey because Turkey got aggressive after they forced them to allow the Nords to enter NATO. And that was their bow out. So obviously, Erdogan must go. He's no longer compliant. Oh, shit. He hasn't been compliant for a long time. And next is Putin. But here's how it goes. Erdogan goes down, right? Russia comes in down from the north. And let's not forget, if Erdogan goes down, whoever they think they have in Turkey will be flipping on them faster than Joe Biden topples over on it damn bicycle. That's how quick they'll flip. It's important we keep focus on the things that matter. There's a lot of things going on, and it's distracting, and, and, and. But what you really need to be focusing on is your local community. I said this again and again and again. There's never enough prayer going on. Never. So don't let the show distract you because that's exactly what it is one of the greatest shows on earth for all to see of course and partake because that's how you learn hands-on experience i mean we need to be able to pass on history and maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea that we focus on verbal history too so on that note i'll let you guys go but tomorrow I'll be dropping something super heavy. Because I figured out who, what, when, and where for the Mar-a-Lago raid. God bless.